Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy is unending, Lord, and you lavish that upon us, Lord. I pray that we would receive that tonight, Lord. I pray that there would be no barrier um, mentally or spiritually or physically that we'd push you away or uh, not allow you to have full reign over us, Lord. Now we submit ourselves to you, Lord. It's only reasonable that we would do that, Lord. We ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit working through the Word. Will you speak to us tonight, Lord? Speak to each individual here tonight and also speak to us corporately, Lord. We need to hear you You say without revelation, people perish, Lord. We need to hear you. We need to know your will. And I know many here, Lord, are burdened and overwhelmed. And uh, we lay ourselves before you tonight. We say, here we are, Lord. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people, please, before you sit down? All right, everybody, come on in and have a seat. What's up, Bob? How you doing, man? You too. All right. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And as we make our way... Through this book, we are learning a lot about the importance of unity and the church all pulling in the same direction. Paul points out the carnal or worldly attitude that was in the Corinthian church, which is causing them to be more individual than corporate or pulling for themselves against other people. They were competitive. They were striving with one another. They were immature. They were pushing for their own views. And then they had a lot of um, problems with sin, sexual immorality. Paul was dealing with all those issues. and, And then as he sort of deals with those issues, he transitions into dealing with some questions that they were asking him. We don't know what the questions were, but we're hearing the answers. So can kind of get an idea what those questions were. And uh, as we look at the next uh, couple script, uh, chapters, we should be able to get a um, couple chapters tonight. But it's talking about the importance of how we use our liberty. So every one of us is probably skewed a little differently in regards to uh, a perfect balance that God has for a believer. And so every one of us, from our perspective, from your perspective, individually, you would see another person as maybe having too much liberty or too much legalism. So that's how we view one another. And we usually do that from our vantage point where we feel like we're the sinner. 
and then everybody that's not exactly like us is they're a little too liberal or a little too legalistic for me. So this is what Paul is dealing with. How do we deal with that? And it's it's uh, Paul is stressing the importance of the body of Christ being on the same page. And how does that happen? How can that happen? How can uh, various individuals from all walks of life and all different perspectives of life and backgrounds, how can they all be on the same page? And it, it, it's not as easy as you'd originally think. You think, well, they're a believer, I'm a believer, they have the Holy Spirit, I have the Holy Spirit. What's the problem? Well, there's a problem. Because none of us are perfectly yielded to the Holy Spirit. And so because of that and because of different stages of growth and maturity and things like that, then um, we have to really work to be united. And that's important because from every level of relationship, Satan is attacking. And relationships that are the most valuable, he attacks the most. So marriages... Satan attacks, so you can attack a marriage and take down a marriage. You've really done a lot. He's, he's, a, he's one of big victories, caused a lot of damage. He attacks a church body and causes division. The Bible says a house divided can't stand. So it, when he starts getting in and causing division and causing strife and, and people working against each other, then you just have a big mess. But it doesn't mean you give up. And the Corinthians church was a mess. And you'd almost uh, look at it, if the, the way it's described and the way Paul's talking about it, it almost seems like maybe they should just disband it <laughs> and just do, uh, like, they're, they're so bad and so corrupt, is, is there any hope for them? But Paul says there is. And Paul says that let's work on fixing these things. Let's not give up hope. And I've seen and actually have come from a church that had a major, back in California, a major church division uh, pastor who had a major fall, caused ripples throughout Calvary chapels in Southern California. It was huge. And I was right in the center of that. And that church is doing great now. And God fixed it. He didn't give up on it. And so that, that, there's hope there that we should continue to fight for unity. We shouldn't just say something's wrong and ignore it, but we should keep fighting. And the, that's what the Corinthians did. So they're writing Paul letters and saying, hey, what about this? What about this? Last week we, we talked about uh, marriage, divorce, singleness, all that. So they're asking him about that. And, and, and so you, you can see there's, there's life because they want to know. There's life because they're willing to receive correction. There's life because they have the Holy Spirit. There's life because they have the Word of God. And if you have anybody who is willing, a, a marriage or a church or a family relationship, any two people that are willing to let the Lord work in that relationship and be humble, then God's going to do work. 
The problem is not everybody is open and willing to do that. And they fight against that and resist against that. And uh, a big part of that is pushing one's own will, pushing one's I'm right. No one willing to die. No one willing to humble themselves. And, and when you get in a situation like that, you get hard-hearted. And when you get hard-hearted and resistant, then the Holy Spirit's not able to work. So here we're seeing how those particular issues in the Bible that the Corinthians were struggling with were some that were just based on what's the proper way to use your liberty, meaning the things you can do as a believer. As a believer, we've been saved by grace through faith. Our sins are forgiven. We don't have to earn anything anymore. If someone first gives their life to Christ... They are the same amount of saved as someone who's been a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. It's exactly the same. But then, how do we exercise our salvation? And that's the key. So, as we look at the whole book as, as a whole, it's unity. And I hope for us as a body of Christ that we would be not only aware of Satan's desire to be divisive, to cause strife. But it takes the whole congregation to fight for unity. And it's, it's not a, a one-time battle, it's a continual battle. And so, as Paul lays this out, this is a very good and important reminder, or maybe for some of us it's new, to really think about our own heart in regards to how our relationship with God and how our salvation is actually being played out in our relationships. And that's really the test of our Christianity. So let's take a look in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. So when he says, now concerning things offered to idols, when he says now concerning, uh, that, that means he's answering a question. So they had had written them a letter. So they had a question. Now he's answering it. And then the question was about things offered to idols. So the context of that is just in Corinth and in many of the areas around Corinth, it would be typical. And in Corinth on a big Acropolis, they had a temple to Diana. And at that temple, they would have priests, and those priests would offer animal sacrifices. And the animal sacrifice would go first to the God that they were sacrificing to. Second, it would go to the person that was offering it. So you may say, what do you mean they would get that? Well, it would be like a barbecue. So they would offer it to a God meat, and they would sort of put it on the altar. It would be grilled, so to speak. And then that first portion would go to the God that they're, with the little g, that they're dedicating that offering to. The second would be to the offerer. So the person coming, they would get a portion of that. And then the third would go to the priest. So you imagine the priest would get full 
pretty easily because a lot of people would be bringing these offerings. So they wouldn't be able to eat all the offerings. So what, what would they do? They would have a little market there and they would sell it. So you can buy meat. If you are in Corinth, you could buy meat at the temple. Or you could buy it in the marketplace. If you bought it in the temple, that would be for the bargain shoppers. It would be cheaper. So it would be like, hey, let's get meat that's been offered to an idol. We're Christians. doesn't matter for us anymore. And it's cheaper. Let's go for it. Other people would say, yeah, but it's been offered to an idol. I don't know about that. So that's what he's dealing with. So they're asking him, hey, what do we do about this? So here's, here's his answer. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. But then he says, and here's, here's the principle, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So that's a huge statement right there. And that should be something that every believer and every fellowship should have written. Maybe we can write that or put that up on a wall somewhere. Because this is oftentimes where divisions occur. They occur because of a head knowledge that one may have. That head knowledge without love then becomes something that is very divisive. And so when a a person or individual, a believer, is filled with head knowledge but without love, they have a tendency to use knowledge to hurt people. They're not sensitive towards other people. That knowledge, he says, makes a person proud. So they, they get puffed up. And I'm pretty sure if you go through the stages of a believer as they grow in Christ, we all, all go through that stage where you learn a lot of stuff and you start whacking people with it. And you start whacking people with it and you start hurting people. And you say things like, didn't you know that? Or you should know that. And you, now we can use social media. We start whacking people. We put these things out and it's knowledge and it's right. But it's without love. So knowledge without love is the problem. So if you take those two things apart, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So the priority is put on the importance of love. Now, love with knowledge is the best. So the the Bible encourages us to gain knowledge of the Lord, of the Scriptures, of the things of God, that's why we have the scriptures, that's why he gave them, that's why Paul's writing this letter for knowledge of God. But to truly know and understand the Lord and gain knowledge of him, if it's done properly, should result in great humility. So that's what he's saying. The principle or the answer he's saying to your question about this food offered to idols, the whole answer is, It's love that's going to build up. And he's telling the Corinthians, if you're going to be a church that's all about knowledge, and remember, they were in Corinth, they were in Greece, they were uh, very um, influenced by philosophy and intelligence and uh, scholarship and things like that. 
And so he's saying, yeah, that's all, all good. But if, if that's all it is, it's going to make you very proud. In James chapter 4, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So think about that. Proud and knowledgeable, head knowledge. And God's going to, he's not going to be into that. So he says in verse 2, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing. Yet, as he ought to know. Now that is quite a statement. If you think you're hot stuff in your knowledge, he's saying you don't know anything. You don't know what you should know. So it suggests it's... Uh, a never-ending pursuit of knowledge that can never be attained fully and completely. That should humble us. I mean, can you imagine if you put everything that was possible to know and measured it, and then you measured how much you know? How much do you think you would know out of everything you could know? For me, it's the more that I've studied and went to school, the more I find out there is to know. It's just one knowing one thing opens up a can of a whole other thing to know. And I know when I first when I was first started studying the Bible and teaching the Bible, there wasn't that access to information like there is now. I'm not going to go too far into that because I don't want to date myself, but <laughs> I didn't have complete libraries at my fingertips of information. And I remember when some Bible software started coming in, and I just thought it was amazing, Bible software, logos, and all this stuff. And I realized I, so I'd have to study for a message. And then you start studying, and then you're like, on this rabbit trail, your message should be here, but you're like way over there. And then you're like, well, what about the message? And you're just lost in these details and rabbit trails and wonder and awe and all these amazing things. And I really believe to study the Bible is to be humble. Because you realize the more you study the Bible, the more you understand the depths of the Word of God. It's a miracle that you could read the Bible your whole rest of your life, every day, and still feel inadequate and insufficient. Why is that? I can't hardly read a book twice except for the Bible. Because the Bible is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible's not like any other book. So we're invited to continue to read it, and the, the more we read it, the more depth there is. The more understanding there is. There's so much depth that we can do it our whole life, and we will never attain it fully and completely. But yet, we can talk to little kids about the Bible, 
and they can understand it. But you can talk to a PhD and ask them questions about the Bible, and it can still be perplexing. You can talk to theologians that have studied the Bible, and they're plummeting the depths, and they're still, they're still plummeting the depths. And that's what I love about the Bible, because I was blessed and fortunate enough to have a Christian heritage of being in Southern California when a little after the Calvary Chapel movement first started, and I just fell in love with the Word of God. And I was taught that that's what you do in church. And I was taught that that's the main thing and to keep the main thing the main thing. And I was just really given a high view of Scripture. And that's, that's what... Calvary Chapel sort of cut its teeth on a high view of Scripture and to understand and know that God speaks through His Scripture. And part of that, uh, our church encouraged us to read through the Bible every year. So I still remember in my mind, they, in the foyer, they had a little like three-fold pamphlet and it had a reading program through the Bible in a year and I started doing that. And uh, it's been a long time, and I still do that. And it's still, I just, sometimes I feel so dumb because I, I've read something, studied it, taught it so many times, and I come to it, and it's like I'm brand new sometimes. And even, uh, like, for our, for our church, we've been going through the, the Gospels. And you may, on Sunday morning, we get to a certain spot, and you've, heard that story we've done that in Matthew we've done it in Mark now we're doing it in Luke and I don't feel bad about going through each one of the gospels because just from my perspective studying the gospels to present a message to you every single time it's the Lord speaks to me and sometimes I I start off and I get into it and I'm going through that maybe like we all do, just kind of the familiarity. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this happens, this happens. But, and then when I study it, just something lights up, something I've never seen before. And the Lord begins to show me those things. But to know that, that to me, that brings great humility. And that's how you and I continue to press forward, not getting bored in the Word, but when we're in the Word constantly and we look and we believe, like, God, you're going to speak to me. And not, you, you don't have a 4th of July fireworks every time, but if you, you get in and you pray and you have an open heart, God will speak to you. And there's nothing more exciting than God speaking to you through His Word. Sometimes it's specific. Sometimes you say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Show me what to do. And, and he'll begin to speak to you through his word. Other times it's just like, Lord, I'm just going to get into your word. Speak to me. But I do think it's very helpful to have a systematic way to do that. That's why I think the 
having a, a one-year Bible program or schedule is very good. Just It keeps me on track. But, you know, everybody has their own way to do it. That's just very helpful for me. But when Paul is, is saying knowledge puffs up, to truly read the Word with the understanding of wanting to know God, it actually brings great humility. And so that's why he's saying, if you think you know something, you don't know anything. Because God knows everything. He's omnipotent. And there's always another depth to plumb. So in verse 3, he says, but if any one loves God, this one is known by him. So that's the thing. The thing is not having a bunch of knowledge. The thing is knowing God. So ponder that, that we have the ability to know God. Not know about Him, but know Him personally. There's not another religion that does that. In other religions, God is this figure outside of man that's not personal typically looking to judge or strike people down. But here's a God, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who says, you can know me intimately. And Paul's saying, that's the deal. That's the thing. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So basically, these idols are made up, right? So they're, they're just like a fictitious figment of someone's imagination. And he's talking to a lot of people who came out of thinking that they were real and they worshiped them. And so because of that, he's saying to them, you know now your knowledge, you know those things are made up and fictitious. You know there's no other God but one. So that's the knowledge he's talking about. So in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we for Him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So that's the knowledge. You, you know that, He's telling them. That's probably what they're excited about. That we know now that there's a real God, and there's one God, and He's alive, and He died on the cross for our sins, and He saved us, and He rose again, and He sits at the right hand of the Father. We know that now, and you other people, you don't know that. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
So there are some that got saved out of that, out of that idol worship. But they're, they're still, at where they are spiritually, they're still sensitive to that. In other words, they'd rather pay for the more expensive meat that hasn't been offered to an idol just because they feel weird about eating meat that's been offered to the idol. And, and Paul is saying, you know, you have knowledge the idol is nothing. It's all made up. It's fake. But there, but there are people that just bothers them. And so there, in the church, you can see there is this, this fighting and striving with one another. Like, hey, we know you can eat it. It doesn't matter. And then the other person just feels like they're being stepped on. They couldn't help it that their conscience was bothered. So in verse 8, he says, But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. In other words, food's not a spiritual thing. You know, some, there are some religions that make food a spiritual thing. Some you can't eat red meat on Friday and things like that. Well, what if you do eat red meat on Friday? He's saying it doesn't matter. It's, that food doesn't make you spiritual or not spiritual. But in verse 9, but be aware lest somehow this liberty, so he's, he's defining liberty then. Liberty is that they've been saved and they have the freedom to eat whatever they want doesn't affect them spiritually at all. So if that's true, then shouldn't we just go for it? And what about those people that it bothers them? Well, that's their problem. That's what they're saying. That's their problem. Because we know. We have knowledge. We know it doesn't affect us. Food doesn't affect us. These gods are fake. So we can eat. We can do whatever we want. And then there are other people are just, you can just feel them getting just crushed in their spirit because it did bother them. And maybe they, they, didn't, they didn't have the full knowledge that some other people did. So what, what should we do with that? That's, that's the question that he's having to answer. In verse 10 he says, If anybody sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So that's the issue. Hey, you have liberty to eat. You can eat those that meat if you want. It won't affect your relationship with God whatsoever. It has nothing to do with you spiritually, but it might affect somebody else. That's what he's getting at. How we use our freedoms. And our freedoms, okay to use if it might hurt somebody else. Well, we're free to do whatever we want. Well, it might hurt somebody else. Well, it might hurt them, but they don't have the, they don't, they're not thinking right. They don't know as much. It, it's not a thing. Well, it's hurting them. And what if, what if the, the eating of that food that is dedicated to idol, what if it 
encourages someone who has a weak conscience and is, is stumbled by that, and then they do it because you're doing it. So it, it shows us that we have effect and influence on one another. We don't live in a vacuum. Nobody does. Our actions affect other people. Every one of our actions affects other people. And he, so he's saying, look, you do have the liberty to do that, but should you do that? You have knowledge that that's not a thing. But what about the other people? What about someone who sees you doing that and they do it because you're doing it and then they get all messed up in their conscience? See, maybe you have a conviction. This is similar to Romans 14. You remember that? Don't dispute over doubtful things. Don't make a thing out of a non-thing. Give grace to one another. Give liberty to one another. Allow the Lord to convict someone's heart, if that need be. So in verse 11, he says, And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against your brethren and wound their weak conscience, he says you actually sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the issue then is do we use our liberty in a selfish way or do we use our liberty with the awareness that what we do might affect other people. And that's one of the scriptures for me personally that makes drinking alcohol just not a thing for me because I know it will stumble somebody if I do that. Do I have the liberty to do it? Yeah, I, it won't. I won't lose my salvation. It won't affect my relationship with God. But it'll, I know it'll affect somebody. It's not worth it. So we have to think about, well, is it worth it if it's going to cause someone to be messed up in their walk with God? So in, in chapter 9, he continues with this, but there shouldn't be really a chapter break. There's not a good chapter break because he's, now he's going to illustrate what he just talked about. So now as he illustrates this principle, he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? He's validating his apostleship. Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle, to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, your evidence of God's working in my life and my authority that God has put on my life to preach the gospel and be one who has a, a mission and a plan that God has given to him. So why is he saying that? There were those in the Corinthian church that really looked down on Paul. 
And Paul is establishing, again, his credentials. And it's interesting that we saw previously they looked down on him. One is because in Corinth, when Paul left after he established the church, when he left, they sort of adopted their own ways to run the church, their own ways to do things. They said Paul was just not very good. Paul was, didn't look attractive. He's small. He didn't speak really good. And then, you, do you remember what Paul said? He said, look, look at my life and look at your life. And he went through this series of explaining that right now as I'm writing to you, I'm hungry and I'm not clothed well. But you're eating like kings and you're clothed like kings, in other words. And he's saying... Why is it that you're doing so well in the world and I'm doing so bad in the world? And he's showing them the difference because he was surrendered to the will and the plan of God and they were worldly in their Christianity. So they weren't persecuted. They were living great. They were living easy. And in the meantime, Paul was running for his life constantly. So they they changed their church structure to uh, a worldly structure that was acceptable to the world standards, and because of that, they didn't bother anybody. They're, everybody's like, okay, those those people over there, but they weren't they weren't that different. And so we see Paul here establishing the fact that you have to remember that. I have been anointed and called by God. And you are my proof because you're saved, because you're Christians of of God's working in my life. That's the validation of that. In verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have a right to eat and to drink? What he's saying is, as they traveled to Corinth, him and Barnabas, do they have a right to have the Corinthian church pay for their meals and their drinks? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, of course. And then he continues with that line of thinking. He says, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So the other disciples, they were bringing their wives with them. And it would be proper for those churches to pay for their wives too. He says in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? He says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense. What what he's saying is, I I want you Corinthians to look look at our life, look at me and Barnabas, look how we came to you. And we didn't receive any money, but we could have. We didn't receive any uh, hospitality, but we could have. And then he's using the analogy 
if you go to war, if, if you enlisted in the military and you went to war, do you have to buy your own guns and tanks and uniform? Of course not. If you join the military, they supply that for you. That's proper and appropriate. And then he says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flocks? He says, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So Paul's saying, me coming to you and not receiving material things from you, was that something that happened because I wasn't allowed to do that or shouldn't have done that? Does the Bible say, notice how he appeals to the Old Testament. Does the Bible say anything about being able to receive materially the one who gives out spiritually? Does the Bible say anything about that? He says in verse 9, it's written in the law of Moses all the way back to Deuteronomy 25. It's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So he's saying all the way back in Deuteronomy, there's a, an illustration that's not about the oxen. It's about people. And an ox, when they would tread out grain, they would eat the grain that they tread out. So they would tread it and they would eat it. And he's using that as an illustration to say, look, we sowed and gave out spiritually, so it's okay to receive materially. It even says that in the law. And then in verse 10, he goes on with that illustration, or does he say it all together for our own sakes? He says, for our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. So there should be an ability to receive materially from what is given spiritually, Paul is saying. He says, if we have sown, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So that, that shows us how they were really looking down on Paul. And you know, part of their looking down on Paul here is that he didn't take any money. So they almost looked at him as like invalid. And it's interesting because, well, first of all, the majority of pastors in America work two jobs. The majority, overwhelming majority of churches are under 500 people, or I'm sorry, under 100 people. And Paul is saying, because I didn't take money and he actually worked, they didn't see him as valid. And, you know, it's weird because when I first moved out here, 
in 2004, I worked another job until 2012 while doing the church too. And the weirdest thing, that's what happened. I remember part of my last five years of working was as a chiropractor. And I remember people just having a hard time thinking it was legit or valid because I had another job that I was a pastor. It seemed, and I remember, you can just kind of feel the, uh, like you're not legit, you're not, your church is not a real church. I actually had somebody say that. That's not a real church. Yeah, that hurt my feelings. <laughs> but that's how they're looking at Paul. Because the leaders in the church at Corinth, they, they were on salary, and they're like more legit. And Paul, Paul is addressing that. He's saying, now, it's weird. You'd think that people would respect that more. Like, oh, wow, but it's, that's not, especially in our society, too. It just seems not legit, not successful, not like you'd want your pastor to be. And Paul is addressing that. So he says in verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you. So other people were getting paid for their spiritual service. He says, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we haven't used this right. So that's the key. So we could have received money and salary, but we didn't. Paul was a tent maker. So he would labor as a tent maker and labor in building this church. And remember, this is all in context of how you use your liberty. Do you use your liberty to smack other people who have weak consciences with it? Or do you use it sensitively to not offend anybody? He says, we haven't used this right, but we endure. So it was hard, he's saying. We endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. That's why he didn't do it in Corinth. He was concerned that if he went there, that they would say, you're just here for the money, if he collected money. So he said, you know, I'm going to go there. And he probably knew the sensitivities of how people thought there. So Because other places he did take collections, and, and here he didn't. And so he, he's saying, I didn't want anybody to be offended. I just wanted the pure gospel to go out with any, without anybody having a reason to say, you're doing it for the money. That's another reason we don't pass around an offering plate. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about that. But I just felt when we moved out here, one of the things I heard a lot was that you're just in it for the money. Or there's an overall kind of feeling that the church is there to grab money from people. Not only that, we trust that the Lord will provide for us. And he has. And we believe that where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is moving on the hearts of the people. He's the one that encourages people to give. And the Bible tells us that if someone gives because they're pressured to give, 
then they shouldn't give. And so maybe to a fault, I've had people that were actually upset because we didn't make more about the offering as well. But remember, everything's a balance, right? And I just wanted to know, at the end of the day, it's the Lord. It's not us shaking people down for money. People are prompted in their heart to give. And we'll do as much as we can with what is given to us. But we're not going to do more than that. And then make people pressured to give to more than that. And we believe God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so if he wants to drop 10 million down, he can do that. If he doesn't, he can do that too. But at the end of the day, it's his church. And we don't feel as if, the, we don't feel the church, it's our responsibility because we have these ambitions that are above the Lord's that we should press people to give. And the Lord's provided. But this, that's where we get that. That's where we understand that. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things, they eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the uh, altar, they partake of the offerings of the altar? Again, reinforcing his point that it's okay to receive materially from what you give spiritually. He said, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that, I sh that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So that's, he's showing his deep motive in his priority above all things is that the gospel goes out. And he's willing, and he's, he's actually even anxious and inviting necessity to happen or scarcity so that God would be the provider. So he can say, look how God's providing for me. He's showing that his whole life is dedicated to the gospel, and because of that, he's trusting in God for the provision. And because he's trusting in God for the provision, he was able to go to Corinth and having an understanding of the sensitivities that they might have, he didn't need to ask them for money, and he was willing to work too. He would do whatever it was, was needed so that they could have the gospel. That was what his whole life was about. Verse 16, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. In other words, He's saying he understands 
that he's been given a responsibility to take care of the gospel. And because of that, his whole life is wrapped up in preaching the gospel. Is that different for Paul than anybody else? He, he said he was an apostle. We're not like that. But I don't think so. Maybe in a specific way he had a calling for the gospel, but I wonder if we've moved off in some way this understanding that the gospel is why God still has us on earth to share the gospel. The gospel is the great commission. It's easy for us to lose sight of the importance of that. It's easy to get into routines of life and forget that the one thing that we can do now that we won't be able to do in heaven is to preach the gospel. And so I just want to encourage you just to be intentional and be thinking about it. And when we say that, it doesn't mean you have to stand at a street corner and preach the gospel. If God puts that on your heart, do that. But you know how many ways there are to share, preach, communicate the gospel? There's many ways to do that. And God has a specific calling for you to do that. You you can just tell somebody, hey, I'm praying for you. God bless you. Can I pray for you? Those are kind of things you can just say. If, if you're out in public and someone says, God bless you, what do you think? It, your ears perk up, right? What if you're at 1845 restaurant? <laughs> and you're there and the waitress says, well, God bless you guys. What would you be? You'd be like, whoa. You'd be surprised. Or what if you're <laughs> or what if you're sitting there having dinner and you prayed before your dinner? Do you guys do that? But what if your waiter or waitress came over and said, Hey, we're gonna pray for you too? What if you say, Hey, would you wanna join us in praying? There's so many things you can do. Just to say say things like that, just to get something going. You don't have to go up to someone and do a sales pitch. Just say a little thing. Hey, at church the other day, I, I never, never believe what we talked about. You'll get a sense if there's a response or not. Some people are like, that's, that's okay. Don't cast your pearls this wine. But you know what? There are hurting people out there. And God has a divine appointment for you. But you, I think, and I include myself, we miss them a lot because we're not ready. Do you ever feel like you had a divine appointment and then after you realize, oh man, I blew it. But see, we have to be ready. We have to be intentional. We have to be thoughtful like, okay, as I go, Lord, and we're praying, Lord, open the door. Lord, lead me to that person you want me to talk to. I think the church overall has lost a bit of that. For some of you Jesus people, movement people, that's all I've ever heard of the things that they're just telling everybody about Jesus. Everywhere they go, telling everybody about Jesus. I think we've gotten away from that. 
Paul reminds us that that's what he's been called to do, and no matter what, that's what he's going to live his life to do. Now, some people are called to do that as professionally, I guess, or as a living. We're all called to do that in our station of life. Wherever we are is our mission field. Wherever we go is our mission field. And so what if we start thinking more intentionally like that? That we don't have to go to Uganda or Haiti. We can go to Tom Thumb over here. So anyway, verse 18, he says, what is my reward then? He says that when I preach the gospel, I may preach the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. So he says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win the more. So I'm free, but hey, if, if it meant the gospel being able to be preached to a particular individual, then I'd be willing to do that. In verse 20, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. So you might remember he went through a purification ceremony. He shaved his head. He knew that didn't save him. He knew that didn't mean anything, but it helped the Jews not be offended so that he could share the gospel with them. He had Timothy, talk about commitment, Timothy was circumcised. Didn't mean anything except for gave them an opportunity to speak to the Jews. So he said, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. He says, to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I think that's the key right there. By all means. That begs the question. Do we need to get back to that attitude? And you know, it's, it's that attitude that helps us overcome the division in the church. That attitude of unity is the attitude where we're all in this thing to save some. That the gospel that God has entrusted in us, that we will do whatever it takes for someone to hear the gospel and not be stumbled or messed up by something we may do or our program or our thing or whatever, but we'll be willing to do whatever so that one person can hear the gospel. I think that's what we need to get back to as a church. I think that's church as a whole. That's where the church has lost it. In verse 23, now I do this for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. And then he ends with this analogy as an athlete, his, his attitude towards what he just said. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race, they all run, 
but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, what is he talking about? Like, it sort of sounds like we're competing with each other. But what he's really saying is we're competing with ourselves to apprehend all that God has called us for. In other words, to be completely what God has intended us to be. That's what that's that's his challenge. Now he's 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 saying this is effort. He's using the word striving. This is how we don't strive with each other. This is how we strive in the same direction. And when we lose this type of striving for this goal, then we will have a tendency to strive with one another. But if we're striving for that soul, we're striving for the gospel's sake, we're striving for that one person to hear, he's saying we're all in a race. And, you know, it's, it's really different someone who jogs versus someone who's going to be in a race coming up, right? So when you jog, it's one thing. But if you know this Saturday you're going to be in a race and 10 million people are going to be watching to see how you do, you're going to live a little differently. You're going to take this week a little differently, right? Hopefully you've taken the last six months differently because you know this is coming. You know this is right. It's not just you're on the treadmill for 30 minutes and just nothing watching TV, like your heart rate gets two beats higher than normal and barely sweating and just, yeah, I put in my time. No, he's saying we're in a race. And we're in a race to be and apprehend all that God has apprehended. So it's not a passive thing. Being Christian is not passive. Now he's putting it in in terms where we're to go for it. We're to exercise our full faculties in the things of the Lord. He says in in verse uh, 25, and everyone who competes for a prize. So there's a, a prize he's saying. It's temperate in all things. So if you're competing for a prize, and he's using an athlete ex- example, and he, he's saying you're temperate or you're disciplined. So whatever sport you like, and the, the Olympics is amazing. I, I, I love watching Olympics because it's like, you look at that person and they zoom in on their face. Say it's like track. And just thinking, these people, their whole life is this one moment. And what has gone in? And you look at how serious they are. That's how we're supposed to be as Christians. We're to take this Christian life way more than Olympic athlete. Think about an Olympic athlete, the dedication, the time, the commitment, how many times they wanted to have cake and said no. How many times they wanted to have Starbucks and they said no. So they're not doing things, but they're also doing things. They're eating the right things. They're training till it hurts. They're getting their sleep. They're not going out and partying. Why? Because they have a race that's coming up and their whole life has been dedicated to this one moment. And so we look at that and say, man, that's that's amazing what they go through. But he uses that to tell us what we're going for is way more than that. He says, but we for an imperishable crown. So in an Olympian, they get a medal. 
And yeah, they get money and stuff like that, but it, fame and all that stuff. But he, the point is that all that stuff is very temporary. He says, what we're going for is not perishable. When you strive for the Lord, you can't lose your reward. You can't lose your belt. You can't lose your status. He's saying that's the motivation he's telling, telling us. Verse 26, he says, because of that, I run not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight not as one who beats the air like shadow boxing. He's saying, I'm not just making stuff up. I'm not fighting imaginary things. He's saying, I know exactly what I'm fighting for. I know exactly the reward. I know exactly the cost. And I've dedicated my whole life for this one thing. It's the gospel. So he says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. In other words, my body is constantly trying to tell me what to do. And I'm telling my body, no. You're not in control. This is interesting. Because it, so often we, we take a view of our, our walk where the Holy Spirit will just make everything easy. And what we find is that this is a war. And that we have the power of the Holy Spirit but he's saying we have to fight because our body is fighting back. Our flesh is fighting back. So we have to take this approach that we're fighting and, and when our body rises up to dictate what we should do, we say no. But why do we say no? Well, Olympic athlete says no to that cheesecake because they got a race coming up. We say no to whatever fleshly temptation presents itself because the gospel is at stake and eternity is at stake and people's salvation is at stake. So not only do I bring my body and discipline it and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he's wrapped up in this thing. This is not a hobby for him. This is not a joke for him. This is not something he cares about being politically correct or being worldly popular. And you think about Paul in the world. I mean, worldwide, he'd be a loser. Isn't that amazing? He, he would be looked at from a world, like poor didn't have much to live for, constantly running from his life and died alone. But what was he like in heaven? What is he like now in heaven? So run the race to win. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening and my brothers and sisters. I pray a blessing on them, Lord. I pray that your words would be written on their heart and their mind. And I pray for all of us. I pray for the church, Lord. We are weak and sick and dying, and we need you, Lord. So let us 
answer the call and let us fight the good fight of faith. Let us be united together as a church body in that fight, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday. Sunday.